0: You know, the last two weeks I've talked about a full devotion. I started the first week with a story of full devotion and I talked about how God is always faithful to his mission and to his people who are serving his mission and I translated that into the story of how our church launched, how LifePoint Church began. For those of you who don't know, this is actually the 13th anniversary of LifePoint Church. Technically, the 13th anniversary will come on Wednesday the fourth but it was the first week of October so we'll celebrate early like with my birthday I like to start celebrating a month or two out or in August it doesn't make me any difference why not celebrate a little longer right so we looked at a a story of full devotion and how the full devotion of God to 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 love his people and to fulfill his promise brings about his mission in the world and then last week we looked at what it looks like to be uh uh, to live a life of full devotion and so we talked about our disciple making strategy and who we are as a church and how God is leading us to be a city on a hill and and what it means for us to continue to live out that vision that God has given for us well today I want to culminate this idea of God's full devotion by talking about a people of full devotion and really this is what I would call the the biblical the theological foundation for our compelled campaign it's the hinge that we're going to spin on in the next four weeks I'm going to talk to you about what it means to live compelled but today we're going to look at what is compelled and why and why and so as we culminate what it means to be a people of full devotion we're seeking to to discern the will of God for our church's life it's not like we haven't seen it but as we've seen the revelation of God the vision of God come forth for us we want to continue as we follow the Lord faithfully so as we go to 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 I want to begin by just reading verses 11 through 15 Paul writes, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Let's pick up with verses 1 through 10 and do a very brief summary of the first 10 verses of this chapter so we can understand where it is that Paul is leading us when he begins verse 11. Verses 1 through 10 are very much to the Corinthians like the way we began the service this morning. They're a picture of our eternal hope. What Paul does is to simply say in the first 10 verses of chapter 5 is that this world is not our home. We're just a passing through, right? The old lyric of the hymn, that that this is not our eternal resting place. This city is not the city of our true citizenship as Christians, but there is a place That is perfect with God and that is the place of our eternal home and therefore our eternal hope. And what he says is because Jesus anchors our hope in the heavenlies or in the eternal places of this creation, because of that there are three things we should never lose sight of. And here's what he says in verses 7, verse 9, and verse 10. Verse 7 he says, because Jesus anchors our hope, we should remember that we live by faith in this world, not by sight. That that this is a, a life of faith, not a life of living by sight. In verse 9 he says, because Jesus anchors our hope, we should remember that we live in this world to please the Lord in all things. That there is none other that we live here to please other than Jesus himself. And then in verse 10 he says, because Jesus anchors our hope, we should remember that we will give an account to him for how it is that we live in this world. See friends, as Christians, we walk every day with our eyes set on a higher hope. It's the hope of Jesus Christ, not just for the here and now, but for all eternity. And we live by faith, not by sight. We remember that we are living to please him in all things and that on the day... Either when he returns or in the passing from this life, we go to be with him. We'll give an account to him. We don't ever forget these things. And so what he does at verse 11 is he takes these reminders and he directs Christ followers. How is it then that we live faithfully in the here and now with our hope, with our hearts, with our minds, and with our sight set on eternity? And you know how he does it? He does it with a little word in the scriptures, a little word called therefore. He uses it four times actually, but really three critical times in the remainder of this chapter. He says, therefore, and what he's saying in the therefore is, because you're not citizens of this world first, but citizens of heaven with God. Because we live by faith and not by sight. Because we live to please the Lord in all things and because we will give an account to him. Here then, therefore, is how we live in the here And now you see that word therefore is the one word that directs Christians how to live in this world in this chapter in other words it tethers what is about to follow it with what immediately preceded it in other words because of this this and because of this this our hope our peace our joy and all of our meaning is bound up with Jesus Christ therefore tethers a Christian's faithful living to God's full devotion you see that's why it's so important for us not to just pass over how fully devoted God is because the way you and I live each and every day is tethered to the devotion of God it's not friends anchored to our abilities to our inherent value or worth it is tethered to the faithfulness of God. Christ followers live fully devoted to the Lord out of the overflow of God's love that fills our life. And that's what I want us to see today. I want us to grab hold of this, that God's redeeming love fills a Christ follower so that we can live compelled. God's redeeming love fills a Christian so that we can live compelled. Compelled, But what does this word compelled mean? What does it mean to live compelled? Well, in verse 14, you saw where it said, for the love of God controls us. That word controls is also interpreted correctly, compelled. As a matter of fact, there's a spectrum of meaning for the Greek word that is used there. That, that Greek word is a word that means a number of things, but the principal essence of that word means that it's holding everything together. It's, it's holding together and, and you can kind of see that there's an inward pressure but also an outward pressure that is simultaneously taking place. It, it means things like to seize, to constrain, to control with an urging force. And so as we see this, this this spectrum of meaning from this one word helps us to understand how it is that Paul builds his teaching up to the climax or to the apex that tells us it is this kind of love that compels us. And that's what he's saying to us. You see, Christ's followers live compelled because our life sources from God's redeeming love. There is never a time when the peace that we have in Christ will end. There's never a time that the joy, the meaning, the strength, or the sustaining power will ever cease. Our source is eternal, just as the very nature of God is and so I want to take these spectrums of meaning from this word and and I want us to talk a little bit about how they show God's love filling us so that it compels us filling us so that it compels us you see friends until we are with God eternally in heaven we live in the here and now and we live in what I would say is the therefore it's kind of interesting isn't it okay here comes a cheesy little preacher joke We're going to see what it's there for and understand what it means to live in the here and now. I want to present to you four motivations that compel us because when we see the spectrum of meaning of this word compel, we're understanding what it means to be motivated in our life to live a distinct way. The first motivation I want you to see today is this, God's love seizes us in worship. God's love seizes us. Here's the first meaning. The first motivation that compels us is worship. Worship because we know the Lord. That's what he says in verse 11. He begins this way. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord knowing the fear of the Lord. You see, verse 11 begins with this sobering reality that every person will answer to God for this life. No one escapes this, not a person. You will either answer to Jesus as the judge of all creation for why you rejected him, or you will answer to him for the way in which you lived for him. But every person answers to Jesus. And so this is that defining motivation that seizes us in worship because we know the Lord. You may not think of God's love affecting you in this way, but let's be very clear about it. When God came to us, that is the demonstration of his love for us all the way to the cross, All the way to the cross. Too often we define love with mushy, gushy terms. God defined love by Jesus hanging on the cross for us and the stark reality of what he accomplished there. And lest we think worship is only some kind of an emotional rush or some kind of a self-centered experience where we only take in, we must not forget that before we enter into worship, we are seized with this one truth, we will give an account. It seizes us that every thought every inclination of your heart, every, every orientation of your mind will come before you and you will give an account to God for that. There is nothing that is hidden. We will be laid utterly bare before him. I don't know about you, but I don't think I want any of you anywhere near me when that takes place. And we will either give an account with a satisfactory response to God with all of our excuses, which let me help you a little bit here. Romans tells us we are without excuse. We will have nothing to say because nothing will make sense that's offered as an excuse. We will simply be struck, actually seized with this one sense of awe that Christ has offered himself for us. For us. Friends, this reality that we will give an account reminds us that worship it is never measured by what we experience. It's always Rightly measured by whether God is rightly honored for who he is and for what he's done. People who reject any sense of fear or awe of God can only reject that by denying the work of God's love for us. You you must deny the cross of Christ to reject that there's any sense of fear and awe in our relating to God. You see, the love of God is what crucified our Lord for our sin. And friends, I don't know about you, but that's serious. That's serious. Manipulating God as some kind of a cosmic comforter may justify our sinfulness in our own mind for a time, but it never sets us right with God let me illustrate a little bit about how the love of God seizes us in worship because we know God you know in all of my growing up years I I knew one thing I knew that I was loved in crazy stupid ways by my parents and by crazy and stupid I mean those in the best of ways it was a ridiculous love let me just go ahead and throw it out there right And I didn't always honor their love the way that they gave it to me. But this kept me grounded at all times. The expectations that my parents placed on me. That they were not willing to allow me to use the high jump bar to walk under for expectations. That they weren't willing to allow me to think that the limbo bar was what I ought to set as my own level of expectation for what I could get over, right? Now I mean, they kept things in check for me in the way that I should live. And it wasn't just measure up so we approve of you, but rather we love you, but we expect that you will live in such a way that rightly honors us because that's the way you honor God. And he is the one you should honor. You see, I didn't always act on that weight of expectation that rested on me. But it was never absent from my life. And let me tell you, when I felt the weight most severely. It's when I was in those moments and in those times that I knew I shouldn't have been in. When I would hear my mother's voice. You know, you can influence them for good. The question is, will you? stop talking to me right now mother right you see it was that weight of expectation that was never absent from my life it always weighed in on my conscience, and I always knew better to think that my parents loved me too much to worry about my rebellion no friends the weight of my conscience said this my parents loved me too much to excuse my rebellion there's a difference there isn't there There is a seizing love that brings an awe of fear to us that says to us that that seizes us that that captivates us and friends God loves you too much to ignore any rebellion that would even tempt you to stray from him. The first motivation for us That we would live in such a way to be compelled by God's love is that we are seized with a sense of awe and fear because we know God. Just as the scriptures of Revelation 4 and 5 said, we have seen his revelation through the reading of his word and we know who he is. God's love seizes us in worship because there is no other like God and worship brings us into the presence of God, into the presence of his holiness and and holiness is never a, a flippant idea, friends, for the more you know who God is, the worthier he becomes of your worship. And this is how that sense of awe and fear fuels us and and, and we desire for our lives to be even more seized, if you will, by the presence of God. You see, friends, you can't out-worship God's worthiness. You can't out-honor God's glory. There's just no sense of what you can offer him that ever compares to the measure of what he pours out in you. It's like you've got a dropper of glory in worship that you give to him and a fire hydrant is blowing you away with the glory that he returns to you. All our worship is always outgloried by God's display of power and of beauty and of might and of strength and of joy and of peace within us. Fear is only a negative impulse for those who have little regard for the one to whom they will give an account. And friends, I tell you, that's a faint deception. You see, worry and anxiety in this world is little more than bloated fear and deflated idols. For the fear of God is not like the fear of man or the fear of this world. It helps us instead of destroys us. And for those of For those who know the Lord, because we know him, Paul says, and who live in relationship with him, this this pulse of fear, this pulse of awe, steers us into humble worship that seizes us with the reality that the holy God of all creation would welcome us into his presence. Friends, I'm telling you, you're here today because of the pulse of fear of the awe of God in your life that says, I need to be with him. He is worthy of all from me and that seizes us in worship friends the Christian life is seized by God's love first with a motivating awe of fear that we will give an account for how it is that we live and we should all know who it is that will be our answer you miss this friends and you miss everything the therefore of verse 11 says this, God's hope transcends this world. It's not bound by this world. The only way that the problems of this world will ultimately be solved are by the Savior. And God's glorious display of love and the death of Jesus Christ on the cross seizes our heart and life in worship because we know what he has done. It's just like the centurion stated, standing at the foot of the cross, a man who was accurately and incessantly trained to not lose sight of the battle and to stay focused. They were hardened men ready to die in battle, and that hardened man looked at the cross that he defended so Christ could be crucified, and here's what he said, surely this is the Son Of God. That's a seizing fear of worship. And that's our first motivation. Our second motivation not only does God's love seize us in worship, but the second motivation that compels us is our identity because God knows us. And this is our identity as Christians. Look at the second part of verse 11. Paul says this. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But then he goes on to say, But what we are is known to God. In other words... There is evidence and there is witness of what we say about our lives as worshipers of God. God weighs in as our advocate, as our witness that we know him because we are known by him. Friends, there are two things that principally and predominantly identify you in your life. Number one is what you love and number two is whom you are known by. These are the two things that principally define your identity in life. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And when he speaks of salvation and what salvation means for us in Galatians chapter 4, he says this, but now that you have come not only to know God, but to be known by God. Friends, it's not that we know God. it's that God knows us. And that's what is defines our lives. Loving God leads us to be known by God, which identifies us. One, Arthur, uh, one author, one author writes regarding how it is that love defines us here's what he explains he's talking about this question what do you want and so often in scripture Jesus poses this question as an initiating question to a conversation with different people and so in response to this question what do you want he says this it's the most incisive piercing question that Jesus can ask of us precisely because we are what we want I thought we were what we ate what they told me in elementary school and I thought I don't have a hope in life you keep serving me this tater tots and chili we all know never mind I'm sorry our wants and our longings and our desires are at the core of our identity the very center of who we are the wellspring from which our actions and our behavior flow. You see, friends, Christianity is not only about knowing God, but being known by God. And we come to be known by God by responding to his love. Identity flows out of our worship because it reveals what it is that we love, and what it is that we love most, and what it is that we love first. And it determines that which we are most known by. Maybe some of you have read the old classic, Velveteen Rabbit. Velveteen Rabbit is a children's book that, that makes this very point, and here it is, that what we love and how it is that we pursue love and acceptance and validation in the world is the very thing that defines us and identifies us. Love, friends. You see, knowing God is comprehensive and consuming in every way. His love impacts powerfully because he holds that which we most desperately long for in life perfect love and perfect acceptance no hey you don't have to do anything to impress you don't have to do anything but just know that God loves you and you're perfectly accepted and loved not because of you because of him and how centering and stabilizing that kind of love is. Think about how it is that love impacts you most powerfully in your life. Think about the best teachers you've ever had and in any level of your life. From the earliest remembrance to the last time you had a teacher for something. It wasn't the one that, that dispelled the greatest amount of information or knowledge to you. That's not the teacher you most remember unless, of course, there was a reason other than just that you remember that teacher. no it's the teacher that dealt deeply with you to instill a sense of love for what you were learning right not just the information the facts and the figures but a love for those things think about marriage for a moment which marriages do you most enjoy and most appreciate and most want to emulate in your own life Two people that can tell you every piece of wisdom and counsel? No, no, no. It's two people that can't do without each other. I mean, you look, at, you look at two people that are just so in love with each other, and you may have never received an answer from them, but you'll look at them and go, I want a marriage like that. Right? Why? Because love. Because love defines us, friends. You see, love determines who you are and it determines who you become known by. The way that you open up your life to be vulnerable, to grow in intimacy with others. That's all determined by love. You see, those to whom you are known best are those by whom you are known. Until you get honest about what you really love... You can't even know who you really are. Christian, we are gods because he's loved us with a redeeming, life-transforming love. He not only loves us in this way, but he defines us by that very love. We are the new, the old is no more. God knows us perfectly. You see, we struggle to forget, we struggle to forgive, and we struggle to move forward from our past, but we must learn to root our life in God's love in every way. Sin drives us, doesn't it? It drives us to determine our identity by finding worth, by finding our value, by finding our acceptance. And so we look for the right person who's going to take me to the next level. We look for the right job that's going to satisfy me and provide for me at the next level. We look for everything in this world that's going to be another rung to move us up and forward because we are driven by this desire to look forward for that which will bring us worth, acceptance, and value. That's what sin does with us. And often it uses very good things to do that. But God's love, it fills us. And it satisfies deeply within our desire by giving love, by giving value, and by giving acceptance to us. It doesn't drive us, it fills us. And that's the way God's love works. You see, God's love holds life together when we remember that I am not what my sin says about me, but what God has said of me because of what he did for me. That's how God's love holds us together. You you are God's, Christian. He created you and he redeemed you. He knows you better than you know yourself because he made you and he remade you. We can come to know our true identity as we open our lives to live fully in God's love. It makes me want to ask, just to pause for a moment and to ask each one of us Is your life held together by God's love? Or something else got you wrapped up? When you know that what you are is known to God, you stop living with worry about what everyone else thinks because the reality of who we are because of Jesus leads us to live distinctly in light of our new identity. God's love holds us together by reminding us of our new identity in Christ. That's the second motivation. The third motivation is this. God's love constrains us Verses 12 and 13, it tells us that that third motivation that compels us is the priority of relationship because we live to serve the Lord. Look at verses 12 and 13, friends. Paul says, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but rather we're giving cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. Right? Let's go a little crazy and let God get to glory. Let's be a little honest so that one another, we can relate to each other. See, what Paul tells the Corinthians is that the, pr- the purpose of his ministry is not to impress you. I'm not laboring to impress you, but I'm laboring to provide an opportunity for you to be able to explain to other people that ask for the reason you hold the love and the hope that you have is because of Christ who came, lived, and died for us. That's why we live the way we do. We as Christians don't put on airs And occupy ourselves with living to try and impress other people. Well, we're not supposed to right? That, that's not the way that God's love works, but rather God's love fills us so that, that, that the priority of relationship comes into our life so that we can live to serve the Lord. That's what it means to, to have Jesus as Lord of your life, that he is your priority. He is the one who rules all of you. And you don't live for anything else. You see, when we allow relationships to wrongly define us, we live to please other people. And we never just live to please one. You know why? Because there's not one other person in the world that can fully satisfy what you're expecting from a relationship when you put that weight of expectation on them. So you end up living to please everybody, looking for a little bit from each one of them. But when we rest in Jesus, it shifts us to become very intentional about how every relationship works in our life. And the way it works is to bring glory to him. You see, friends, as Christians, the opinions of others do nothing to define nor to deter us. Listen, some people are going to call you crazy. And if they call you crazy, tell them you're crazy because Christ has filled your life and when you are compelling and convicting and serving them in a way that honors God tell them well God's just given me a little reprieve from the crazy so I can bless you right now that's what Paul's saying to him the priority of our relationship to Jesus as king rules the Christian life friends ask yourself are you living superficially Or are you living with the priority of relationship that all of your life would be lived to serve the Lord? This is a love that constrains us. You know, marriage is a relationship that constrains. Some have called it an institution. I'm not talking about that kind of constraining. I'm talking about a relationship that constrains us when it is rightly prioritized. You see, how I relate to others is first and foremost determined by the priority of my marriage. It starts with my children. There's, There's one defining reality about the Harrison home I've tried to instill into my son and daughter you ain't number one in this house. You're both number two. And if you aggravate number one, you're going to have big problems with the one who doesn't get a number right work it out (laughs) that that's the constraining aspect of my marriage you see I, I I never want anyone to think anything other about my life than this that Kristen is first to me Not above God. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the priority of relationships in this world and how it is that marriage constrains us. You see, a constraining love is a love that not only keeps you from doing things you shouldn't, but it leads you to do the things that you should. And it's not that you live out of an alt and an alt-not, but rather you want to cultivate this kind of love. You see, marriage is a constraining relationship when we live to honor the Lord through the way that we honor our spouse. And that's what he's telling us. All of life is filtered through one priority. What is it that will best and most display that Jesus is Lord in my life? And everything, about every area, every inclination of my life, should represent that one commentator said it this way I love this Christ's love is a compulsive force in the life of believers a dominating power that effectively eradicates choice in that it leaves them no option but to live for God and for Christ Christian can this be said of you that your life is so filled by God's love in Jesus that it dominates you man it won't leave me alone it's the greatest feeling in the world I love it it's like being that little kid who's wrestling with your dad you know you get beat every time and you just keep going back cuz it's the funnest thing you could possibly imagine right yeah does god's love do that to you does it constrain you in this way paul talks about the constraining love of god uh, the constraining work of god's love in philippians 1 21 to 24 when he says for to me to live is christ and to die is gain If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor, yet which I shall choose. I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed by the two. I don't know if I want to go be with God or if I want to stay here and tell everybody about him. That's a constraining love, these two realities. And, And some people dismiss this as going, man, you're just preaching a radical Christianity. Well, that's, friends, what the Bible calls normal. There is no such thing as radical Christianity. That's an oxymoron. That's That's an unnecessary duplicity of words. Christianity is either all or it's nothing. Jesus is either Lord or he's useless to you. And the question you've got to answer in your heart is this. Do you live with the awareness that you will give account to him one day for the way that you live your life? And what will you stand before him and say? And if that strikes you, then there should be a love that holds you to understand the way that he's identified your life and defined you as a follower of himself. And that love should be a constraining love that determines not only what you don't do, but most importantly, occupies you with everything that you do. That's what Paul's telling us. These are the motivations for why a Christian lives the way a Christian lives. When God's love fills us, we prioritize our relationship to Jesus as Lord to make sure that our whole life serves him first. And the fourth motivation is this, that God's love urges, urges us. Do you sense that in this? The fourth motivation that compels is a conviction, a conviction, because what we hold to be true of him determines how it is that we live for him. You see, friends, here we see finally how the love of God that seizes us, that holds us together, that constrains us, also controls us. If I can just use a a very near pun for us, this is the life point at which God's work in us becomes God's work through us right here a redeeming love that compels us is never rightly reflected by a comfort driven mindset by a complacency ruled inaction by a consume pleasured purpose rather the christian life is fueled from the conviction of christ's atoning sacrifice i've used this before and i just think it's such a good illustration i'm going to use it again this is an illustration of centrifugal force and do you know how you get the ball to go faster and the force outward to be stronger, you increase the force in the middle. You don't touch the ball. But at, let me stop it right quick before I hurt somebody, namely myself. No, no, no. The strength of the center determines the power of the moving out. That's what Paul is saying here. We believe this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died. Are you convinced of that? I don't mean convinced like intellectually. I mean convicted in the depths of your gut. Christ died for me this life is for him a gospel that cannot and has not moved you is a gospel that does not seize you hold you or control you it's not a gospel worth living for but the deeper our conviction of what God's word says about Christ's sacrifice for us the more powerful the compelling work of God's love will become in us Compelled, friends. Compelled. The way we live reflects the one by whom we've been loved. How can we do any other? I'm going to ask the worship team to return.